Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, my name is Michael Waits with ATP Crypto. I'm talking to Jason Goldberg. Jason is the founder and CEO of Simple Token and the founder and CEO of Peepo. Good morning, Jason. How are you? Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I mean, I should say thank you to you. It's the day after Thanksgiving, and if it's just a normal Thanksgiving in the United States, you've probably had a lot of turkey and stuff as well, yeah? Yeah, but you know, we, we, we definitely ate a lot. It's the first time I've done U.S. Thanksgiving in a couple of years. I live in Berlin, Germany, and been really focused on you know, building you know, the startups that we're working on. And so I got home this year, and the, you know, the timing could not be worse. Like we're in the, <laughs> literally in the middle of our ICO, but I kept my promise to my husband and to our family. And um, yeah, was, we had about you know 20 plus people at dinner last night, and the whole time I was you know telegramming with our community. <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm, I'm literally in our Telegram channel personally, you know, 18 to 20 hours a day. And sure. there's another one of our moderators, this guy, Ignis, who's fantastic. And I think the guy never sleeps and he's like answering questions around the clock. And that's just part of, you know, our, our engagement community. And so, yeah, Thanksgiving plus Telegram. That's a, And then this morning, um, you know, slept off the turkey, woke up and back at it again. So where where are you from originally? Yeah, so I actually am right now in my parents' house in Rockville, Maryland, which is outside of Washington, D.C., that I grew up in. Um, my, my family moved here when I was two years old, um, and I'm 45 now, so long time in this house. And, uh, yeah, and so I'm, I'm in Rockville, Maryland right now, grew up there, and um, so like I'm in Berlin. Is your, is your bedroom like still in the same place as it was when you were a kid? I literally slept in the same bedroom uh, last night that I that I grew up in. Yes. How how good is that? Yeah, it's um, it's if you know, my parents are amazing people. They're the most supportive, loving you know parents you can awesome. imagine, and um, it's great to come home. And can I ask where your husband's from as well? Yeah, so uh, Christian is uh, German, um, and we met in New York in 2008. Um, wow, and awesome. the irony of things is that we met in New York, and he had moved there for for his work, and then um, I ended up moving to Germany twice after that and dragged him back with me. I mean, he had never really had any chance to come back. Um, I, told, I had a company called Social Media that we started in 2008, which right. has a lot of ties to kind of what we're doing right now because it was, you know, Decentralized uh, news uh, collaborate, you know, collaborative uh, filtering of news, right? So it was the idea, of, rather than relying on a publisher or editor to tell you what to read every day, the idea was how do you get the news from other people who share your interests and collaborate, um, collaboratively filter for each other, right? Right. And so we built this in 2008, and it actually grew very quickly. You know, millions of users in a matter of months. Back when you could do that, I mean, it's before the app store, right? and this is just a website, right? Uh, and you know, so now we have millions of apps that everyone's competing with. But this was like you know early days, um, and so yeah, so we we sold that company to um, a company called Zing within uh, eleven months of founding the company. Awesome. And Zing was like the LinkedIn of Europe, based in Hamburg, Germany. And so six months after I met Chris, I was like, "Hey, glad you moved from Germany, but I'm moving to Hamburg now." Um, and I'm and uh, he was like, "I'm staying in New York." So we did the longer. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I just got here, um, but yeah, and then uh, and then I I moved to Berlin uh, in 2014, um, also for a company, and that he followed uh, this year actually. So he went to business school in Singapore uh, last year. It's amazing what people will do for love. Yeah, you know, it's uh, love and passion, and and you know, we uh, 
also, you know, we're, we're both very career oriented and like building things yep. and supportive of each other. So I want to tell, and that's fabulous, right? Because that's the, the only way to have a great partner is to have a partner that's supportive. Like it's, it doesn't work any other way. So good stuff. Yep. I want to do, I want to tell a little story going from the Clinton White House through to Pipo and then into Simple Token. So if you can give some details there, I'm sure I'll have some questions along the way. And then I want to spend some time talking about the ICO because I think it's not just important for what you're building, but also important for what's happening in the world right now as well in the context of raising money. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different directions we can go in this, and I have a lot of, you know, you can imagine I have a lot of views on it. Sure, um, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, if you look at, you know, as I said, I'm 45 years old. When I was 19 years old, um, I really went to work for my first startup, um, which was Clinton's campaign for president in 1991, wow. um, which is probably, you know, be- before most people listen to this podcast even remember anything. But, um, <laughs> probably. you know, um, you know, I, you know, kind of entrepreneur startup mentality is not just about creating companies. It's more, you know, I think about seizing opportunities and, you know, luck and doesn't happen to you. You go out and make it. And, you know, the, the so, you know, looking back on it, it's like, I don't know how it all came together, but like, it, like I was a, a freshman in college at Emory university in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was obsessed with the idea of, um, getting George Bush, uh, the first George Bush out of office. I had taken a class on American presidential politics and, um, and, you know, I was, you know, passionate about this. And I had, like, there were seven candidates vying to be the Democratic, uh, candidate for president at the time. And I read about all of them and I thought this guy, Bill Clinton, can win. And I, you know, called the campaign in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, there was no, there was no really way to email them back then. I mean, no. we had email really just university thing um and i called the campaign and i said hey i'd like to come work for you and someone actually called me back which was pretty amazing you know? and um and they called me yeah, basically the first time i called they said uh hey and they said can you can you go to new hampshire and cause that's where the first you know primary is in the u.s elections and right. i said no i'm just a college student in atlanta georgia and they said all right you know, we'll call you back if something comes up and three weeks later they called me back and say hey you said you were in atlanta georgia the governor's wife, Hillary Clinton, is coming to Atlanta. We drive her around for a couple of days, and you know, I said sure. So I ended up, you know, driving you know Hillary Clinton around for a couple of days, and um, and then you know Clinton came to Atlanta a couple weeks later, and then they said, hey, they 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 like you. Do you can you come work for us? Um, and yeah, and I said, as I said, the rest is history. I I dropped out of college um, to work on the Clinton campaign. You know, I was really passionate about um, you know change at the time right and it was you know and um dropped out of college my you know my mom said as long as you promise to finish you do it you know, go ahead and <laughs> uh, and then yeah and i ended up working in the clinton white house from 1993 to 1998 and finished college from the white house in between there uh, my mom always jokes that i i get the, the dean of, of, of the college at emory when we went back from our graduation so that I'd, I'd done more credits off campus than any student they ever had um and uh, good stuff though right yeah yeah, it was yeah amazing experience, and you know, but I you know I, I basically I was living in a bubble though, right? So like you know the nineteen, you know, I was in the White House during my twenties, right. and I really you know, obviously I saw so many amazing things, but also like had no idea how the real world worked. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> it's kind of funny to think about, right? Because like I remember, like I went to business school at Stanford in nineteen ninety eight, and, and all my classmates had come from like you know McKinsey and Goldback, right, right, right. Europe. You know, they were a different kind of hardcore cutthroat than I was. Like, I was more like, 
once you know when we say we want to get something done, we just do it. And they're like, you know, there was a lot more. Weirdly, there's a lot more politics coming out of iBanking than there was out of politics. Yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to tell me. And I was going to say, like, if you think you were in a bubble, you have no idea what it's like to work at Goldman Sachs. Like those kids were yeah. definitely in a bubble. And they had no idea what the real world was like as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So you come, but you come out of business school. You're in San Francisco. You're in that whole area. Was there anything about the startup space that just got you going? Or because the the thing that I learned right early on was, and you learned this in the Clinton campaign. The first thing you did was you just called and asked them. Like they never called you and said, "Hey, Jason, do you want to come work for us?" You just made that first phone call. And to me, it's a metaphor, right? And that metaphor is you never get anything you don't ask for. I think about this all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean. I mean, look, I, I chose to go to Stanford. I was fortunate to get into it. Um, you know, I had no business background. I mean, I guess I tested well as I was. Like, I yeah, was real, felt really lucky. Like, um, like, you know, we're called poets, you know, people who get into business school who they don't know why you got in. Right. Um, <laughs> cause you're not, you know, you're not like a typical pedigree. And, uh, but maybe that's also the reason why I got in. But I chose to go to Stanford because it was in Silicon Valley and right. because it was in the middle of the dot com boom. Um, you know, I started business school in 1998 to be in Silicon Valley in 1998 was awesome. like the place. To be. Yeah. And I actually then, um, my, the, my first job uh, you know, during business school, I consulted for a number of startups as well as it's some projects for some B2B exchanges. And, uh, then my first job during, um, business school was at AOL. Um, and you know, back in 1998, AOL was the internet. It was, um, no, it was, it was the Facebook. It was a walled garden of everything that was online was on AOL. It just was Steve yeah. case. Steve case was amazing, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And actually I'm still in touch with Steve. He's an amazing guy and like yeah. what he's done since and his charitable efforts as well. He's amazing. Um, but you know, it's interesting. So when it's, it uh, tied this again, like to kind of like blockchain, but like, so uh, two, two parallels I'll give you. One is, um, you know, when I was in the White House in 1993, 1994, there was this guy, this guy Tom Khalil, who I worked really closely with, who was like the, I mean, I don't even know what his title was, but he was basically the internet guy, right? And his right. job, his job basically was to start, you know, really pushing the internet within the White House. And so I think he was like technology strategist or something before they had like a CTO of the White House. And I remember looking at, you know, Gopher and the Mosaic and the Netscape with him and, yep. you know, working with the first, you know, White House web page. I mean, that was like, and, you know, and, and, you know, and the parallels of like where we're at with blockchain is that, you know, you know, 1993, 1994 internet is essentially where we're at with blockchain technology today, albeit with the hype right now of say like 1999, 2000. Right. Uh, um, and, you know, and then I mean that is like, you know, we're still laying the infrastructure and the plumbing and, you know, you think about, you know, Netscape browser didn't even exist in 1993, you know, there, you know, uh, and, you know, services like, like salesforce.com, which is like, you know, the, the, you know, the synonymous with CRM today, they started salesforce.com in 1997 or 98, I think. Um, uh, so it's been around for 20 years. It's like a long life cycle to, um, to build out kind of these, these companies. And, you know, so we're, we're still at kind of day one of blockchain. Um, and, uh, the other kind of the other kind of parallel I'll give you when people ask me, you know, about you know an, an, another blockchain company, and they say, "Well, isn't so and so doing that, or isn't so and so doing that?" Right. And I always say, "Guys, you know, there was a time twenty years ago when AOL was the internet." So like, I think it's a little early to declare winners because you know things evolve and things change. I mean, there was a time when MySpace was you know social you know social media, right? Right. Or, you know, social thing and doesn't exist anymore. I, mean, I remember using Friendster. Friendster, right? and, I know. Exactly. Right. And so it's like, you know, these things go in waves and it's all about, you know, who builds for the long term and execution. And yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about, you know, the deification of Jeff Bezos. Right. 
And yeah. Jeff is an amazing guy, but you're, you're seven years younger than I am, right? So when I was 24, you were 17. So when I was in Tokyo ordering my first book on Amazon, you were probably still a college student. And yeah. you may or may not remember, depending on how much attention you were paying, but like, you know, it was Amazon.bomb and Amazon.org and this company's definitely going to go away and eBay is just a fad. And, you know, it was pets.com and webvan.com and all these companies. And you're right. If you look, if you went through that, you should be able to look at what's happening in the blockchain infrastructure right now and see the future, see the development future, right? There will be hundreds of companies to try to take advantage of this and maybe we should move more quickly yeah, yeah, sure. into people, right? But if you can see the future here without being able to pick who the specific winners are going to be, you kind of know what they're going to look like though, right? And the types of people that are going to build them. You yeah, wanna... look, I, you know, I think it's very well said. And I think, you know, there was a lot of, you know, blockchain companies that raised globs of money over the summer right. when the ICO market was, you know, super frothy. Yep. And that doesn't mean they're going to be the winners. Nope. You know, the, what, what, no the winners will be the companies that, have uh, you know the leadership and the vision and the execution and that keep at it and kind of you know make it happen over time yeah i mean just build a sustainable business model and you'll beat the people that are just trying to make a quick buck every single time and you're right execution is one of my favorite words right because having an idea is easy but executing yeah, I mean, look, that I, idea is I, impossible i founded a company called fab.com and we raised too much money uh and people are like what does that mean and i'm like well can you, if you raise too much money you end up um, you, you can in, end up investing and kind of um, putting money into things that maybe before you're ready to. And that's what I look as like one of the warning signs I have for a company, you know, a blockchain white paper that raises a hundred, 150, 200 million dollars. It's too soon. Like you don't know how to deploy that kind of money, especially if the founders have never run a business before. Yeah. I mean, look, I make an equivalency to, and maybe this sounds weird, but I make an equivalency to LeBron James. I mean, what's it like coming out of high school, particularly with all the hype you had since you were 14 years old, just getting ridiculously rich? It is too much resources. And I am proud of him for not mucking it up, basically, because there are plenty of stories, like you said, of people having too much money, whether companies or individuals, you have it. And particularly if you're, if you're ICO funded, in a way, and I know I'm going to misspeak a little bit here, but in a way, it's like free money, but you always overspend. And overspending is always bad. If you grow too fast, you stretch yourself too thin, you're going to build a business over time that's not sustainable. It's not going to work. I mean, look, so, I mean, you know, without getting too deep into it, you know, I, I, you know, I founded a company called fab.com. Right. And if we, you know, we had an amazing first year of business. I mean, we went basically from uh, doing $18 million in sales in the first six months to doing $112 million in the first full year. Right. Uh, and if we had just focused on getting that business profitable at $100 million, yep. the company would have taken on a totally different life than what happened, which was investors came piling in. They were kind of excited about, let's go to 250 Let's go to 500 Yep. And, you know, and, 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 you know, and then Amazon crushed us. You know, so, <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. <laughs> but but let's let's be let's be clear about this though. While it may not have been um the ending the way you wanted it to end, tell me you didn't learn something massive from that experience. Oh, absolutely. Like just in yeah. real terms, right? Not in like bullshit Silicon Valley terms. Yeah. And excuse my language, but like in real terms, in other words, the next time I build a business, first of all, I'm going to build it my way. Second of all, I'm going to raise just the right amount of money. I'm not going to overspend. I'm not going to overbuild. And when someone comes to me and says, we can get this going faster, 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 I'm going to say, great, you do that over there. I'm going to do my thing over here. Yeah. I mean, you, you just basically said this, said the story for me. So let's speak on its own. I mean, it's, it's, um, like I've had successes in my, in my professional career. I've had failures. I've had 
things that you could say kind of are in between, you know, keep learning, keep building, you know, and I think the biggest thing that I've had over my, my career is just, you just gain perspective. Yep. Um, the things that maybe would bother me a lot, you know, five years ago, you know, don't stress me as much anymore. <laughs> the things it's like, figure out what are the right things to focus on, the right things to stress on. And also to, as you said, do it, the way that you, you know, the, do it the, the way that you, that you start to, you know, understand is the right way versus, you know, being overly influenced by outside, um, kind of, uh, influences. And, right. um, I'm very comfortable in my own skin right now. And I, and I say that in like, you know, obviously always growing, always, always evolving, always changing, but I'm, you know, I know kind of my blind spots. I know kind of where I need to compliment myself with, you know, with, with you know, different types of, you know, skill sets and people around me. And I'm not, not ever afraid to say I need help. Um, and so anyways, yeah, so, um, life's a journey and, you know, I look at it 45 years old, hopefully I'm less than halfway through. So yeah, exactly. I'm hoping I'm less than halfway through and I'm seven years older than you. So let's see who's, got, go. that. Let's see who's got that one. Right. But um, back to blockchain for a second. I think you know, there is something, I mean, I mean, you and I can go on about this forever, I'm sure. But like when we look back at this and my parallels to the internet, uh, in 1993 is, you know, there was articles in 1994 and 1995 about, you know, front page of Time Magazine Newsweek saying, you know, the Internet is not going to be anything, right? right. Exactly. And this is overblown hype. And kind of like your point with kind of, you know, when people are saying Amazon.bom and, yep. you know, that, you know, I mean, this is kind of like, you know, where we're at in terms of blockchain, it's like it's day one still. And it is the potential is massive and it could redefine so many facets of society and community and the, 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 what we know about institutions and trusts, um, of, you know, how, you know, transactions and intermediaries. I mean, there's going to be so many things that are, can be redefined there at a, at a higher kind of even like cultural level. And I think like, just like we didn't understand 20 years ago what the internet would do. I really feel like we're at the very beginning stages of a, of a societal and cultural phenomenon that we will not fully grasp for another, you know, meaning of another 10 or 20 years, just around this one concept as follows, that for whatever reason, um, there are several million people around the world today who are embracing using a currency or a series of currencies uh, or a class of currencies that are not the national fiat currency that they've always been told is the currency. Right. And right. they're putting belief in, a currency that has no borders, that has no owner, that is about what you know, basically that is you know, it is decentralized, and that the, the and that the power of it is in digits and proof of work and proof of stake, um, not just what the you know the, the federal government of our country says it is, and that's a movement that you know you know we're just at the very beginning days of understanding what that means, and I think it's not something that just happened either. It happens as a result of things that happened over the, you know, the last 20 years as well. Right. So Absolutely. it's a, it's, it's a continuation of Facebook connecting the world and, you know, WeChat connecting the world, you know, the Asian world. It is a continuation of, uh, you know, the, let's say the Arab spring and, you know, in Twitter and the free speech and, you know, movement, it's, it's the continuation of after effects of the 2008 financial crisis and people losing, faith in institutions. And, uh, and so these things, you know, are long-term trends. And once these things start happening, you know, I, you know, they don't stop. 
Uh, and you know, like, you know, Obama used to you know talk about you know the, on, on the long arc of history, right? That you can't get in the way of it. It's a, you know it's a, it's a moving train, and you know it can it can veer off in different directions at times, but over but over the long run, it's going to happen. And and it's hard to see that sometimes we're in the middle of it, right? Because you know progress gets halted, it goes backwards, and we can talk about Trump and other stuff. But uh, um, but but what I look at is like you know. Governments and institutions will resist the same way that people, you know, resisted the internet uh, initially, especially. In, but these things are happening, and um, getting in, getting in front of that, and getting and being part of, you know, one of the companies and one of the organizations that's trying to move it forward is one of the most, you know, kind of exciting places to be in the next, you know, 20, 30 years. Right. So I want to talk numbers just for a quick second, right? In your mind, just based on the research and work that you've done on the blockchain and on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and it can be an about number, right? But how many people do you think are trading in or transacting in or just understand globally what Bitcoin is? If you could put a number on it. I have a number in mind, but I just want to make sure you and I are talking about the same number because then I want to put that into context for how many people are on the internet and then just how small a number that is. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, I look, you know, back in August, we looked at uh, some of the data on this and, you know, depending on, you know, whose numbers you look at, there was at the time somewhere 15 to 25 million unique crypto wallet holders. Fine. So 25 uh, million people over three and a half billion people on the internet is 71 basis points. Yeah. And, so and 70% like, of 1%, it's nothing. Yeah, well, think of it right now, right? So, you know, there's over a billion daily WhatsApp users. Right. Um, I think there's almost 2 billion daily Facebook users now. Yep. And we're talking about, you know, 25 million unique, you know, crypto. Now, I also look at is that's the opportunity, right? And that's like, you know, right? It's not the limitation, it's the opportunity. That's my point though, right? Is that so few people are involved, but when they do get involved, like it's almost like that, was it the Hemingway quote, right? I went bankrupt. First, it's really slowly, then it's instantaneously. And I think in reverse, it works as well with cryptocurrency. It's like, yeah, it's, it's going to happen really, really slowly until a wave hits, and then it's going to happen instantaneously. Okay. And well, like, like Mark Andreessen, you know, used to, you know, he used to say that the, the some of the best, you know, ideas to invest in, on, on, you know, are the ones that failed during the dot com bubble. Absolutely. And his point was in saying that was that. The ideas themselves were great, just the, uh, the consumer adoption and the bandwidth hadn't caught up. Um, and you take the same idea and you kind of recast it once you have, you know, a billion people, two billion people, three billion people walking around with, you know, supercomputers in their pockets and, you know, magic can happen, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you couldn't have had a cryptocurrency wallet in your pocket even 10 years ago. So iPhone prior, before there was a smartphone, before there was Android that was everywhere, it wouldn't have been possible. But in the same way, let me give you the perfect example of this, okay? And again, it's a little bit of me talking my own position, but just so you can understand my perspective. In 1999, I worked with a guy named Niraj Janji to build something called Imahima, okay? And Imahima was built on the Docomo, so Japanese platform. It was the first do, like, do communications on the mobile network, yeah? And it was an internet-based, right, community that had 500,000 people. He patented check-ins and social networking on a mobile phone. But it was just way too early because the technology just wasn't there to support it. But if you fast forward to 2012, he, all those patents that he did, he sold to Facebook, right? So he wasn't wrong. He was right. just really early. And it's the same thing you're talking about, right? Like cryptocurrency 10 years ago, first of all, the, the white paper hadn't been published yet. But even if it had been, 
Nobody would have cared because it couldn't have been implemented. But today, you can have a company like WireX that's based in London, but 40% of its clients are in Asia and they have, you know, yeah, nine, yeah. a million yeah. people using their wallet. Like it's just not, and it's not going to stop. And hopefully you can hear my excitement. I'm sorry if I'm talking too fast, but the thing you kind of brought up peripherally was there's a secular change taking place in the context of decentralization that the blockchain is going to have an impact in that we could spend the next five days talking about and still wouldn't cover every instance of its applicability. Yeah, yeah? exactly. Anyway. Yeah. You know, I, I was having you know conversation last night with, with my uncle at you know, Thanksgiving, and he, he works for you know, Freddie Mac, right, which yep. is a mortgage. Know Mac, yes. And you know, basically between Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, I think they have information on every single mortgage, mortgage. Yep. In, the, in the U.S., right? Yep. Um, and we're talking about blockchain, and he was like, intuitively, all this should be on a blockchain. Now, getting these institutions to put on a blockchain is going to be the hard part. I'm like, this is the same conversation we had about the internet yep. and kind of proprietary software solutions 20 years ago. And it will happen, and it'll happen. From forces will happen in, in different directions. It'll be from you know startups. It'll be from consumers. And then eventually, you know, large institutions will have to figure out, okay, either we adapt or we die. Right. So I want to talk about people in one second, but I want to make a point that I made when we were not recording. And that is, it's going to have, I'll tell you why I think it's going to happen in Southeast Asia first. In the same way that I said at the beginning of this year that the first testing for autonomous vehicles is going to be in Singapore and it came to fruition was because Singapore is a very forward-looking country with only five and a half million people with a government that has almost complete control over like the infrastructure there. But fast forward to today and the MAS, so the Monetary Authority of Singapore, in conjunction with Accenture, yeah, and IBM, and I talked to, um, what's his name, Jesse Lund at the beginning of this week about some of this, has just conceptualized something called Project Ubin. And Ubin is an accumulation of 11 financial, global financial services companies that are going to try to help the Singaporean government get their currency to be a digital currency first to tokenize it and get it on the blockchain. That's why it's amazing for me to be in Southeast Asia because that kind of stuff can happen here because of the way the Singaporean government is set up. It, it, it's, it's amazing what can happen when um, governments, you know, not just embrace but kind of, you know, they see it and they and they push it, right? Alignment and it's important, yeah. Yeah. I mean I was in Dubai a couple of weeks ago yep. and you know, like Dubai has basically said that we're gonna have the entire government on a blockchain in a couple of years. And it's like that's a bold statement and they're gonna push and make it happen. They can't because again, so I don't know if you know this, but when the when the when the UAE, right? So between Dubai and and Abu Dhabi, there are five other Emirates, but whatever. But when those two Emirates got together and said we want to build the Dubai Financial Center, right, the DFC they went to Singapore and studied everything that GIC, the MAS, right, that Temasek was doing so they could then build the DFIC in Dubai. And they've done a great job of actually not replicating it, but sort of making it even better in Dubai. And Dubai will be probably the second place where all this stuff happens because give the sheikdom some credit there. I know you already have, but I want other people that are listening to give them credit. They've been very forward-looking in their ability to build that um, infrastructure. So I'm very proud of what they're doing there as well. Yeah, yeah. Um so, people, where do we go? talk talk to me about people because I want because I want to lead from there into simple token because I think those two things are slightly symbiotic right. if that makes sense. Yeah, so look, there's there's certain themes that kind of come back during my career, and um, you know, so so one is you know, so back from the days of when I worked in the White House, I was always fascinated with um, the news uh, and kind of how people get information. Right. And so that was, that's what drove me to starting social media and was back in 2008 was, 
you know, as I said, it was kind of this notion of how do we, rather than we're just relying on, you know, the news editors tell us what to read every day, how do we rely on kind of decentralized kind of collaborative filtering to decide? And, um, and, and, and that, I said, there's, I can draw a thread to that to where we went to when in 2000, early 2016, it's early last year, um, I had sold kind of a company called Hem, which was kind of an outshoot of Fab. Right. Um, and this, uh, the team and I have been working with the same team of engineers since, uh, 2007 across several businesses. You know, we, we were kind of got together and said, you know, what do we want to build next? I and mean, it wasn't even a question of whether we're going to build, like, <laughs> right. what. And I kind of, I kind of said, well, you know, I, I, coming back to the same theme that we, from where we started with social media and was, you know, we, we really, we'd been passionate about this idea and talked about it a long time about how to democratize and decentralize the market for, uh, tips and reviews and specifically around kind of local and travel tips. Uh, and what we looked at is that, you know, for, you know, this centralization of the internet with that people had been giving all of their content, uh, in that space to central providers like TripAdvisor and Yelp and Zomato and basically giving all their free advice and expertise to the central providers who've been making, you know, minting money around advertising around free user generated content where the, the value is in the actual experiences that people are having. Right. Um, and we kind of said, well, we saw a great opportunity that we thought was really, you know, really compelling to say, well, what if we were to flip that model on its head and mm-hmm. enable, you know, people to get advice and tips and reviews, um, from the people who, uh, had those experiences and then enabled the influencers to earn money um, by providing their you know, expertise. And so that was basically the, the concept behind Peepo. It was, you know, to democratize and centralize, you know, tips and reviews. Um, and we, big vision to them. We said we were going to start off with local and travel and then expand to other categories over time, build as a platform that could be, you know, across anything, right? Um, and so it could be in the future, it could be, you know, weight training or nutrition or cooking, whatever it is, but we said we'd, we'd start with kind of local and travel. And so we we went really deep into, you know, and we, you know, we basically, we, we looked really deep into how to build a kind of a, a marketplace around that. And, a, and we, we, and we knew right away that we would need to have some kind of currency around it that in order for people to earn, it couldn't just be people paying each other with, you know, fiat cash. There'd be, you know, and so we, we, we looked at, you know, how do you build the right um, kind of incentive model? And so we were studying token economics, you know, 18, 20 months ago, um, actually more like it was like, you know, almost two years ago. And we were looking at, you know, how would we build a, you know, a, 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 a token economy, a digital currency. Um, how would we, uh, you know, in, in, in use kind of a token to incentivize people to provide content, to reward them when other people found that the content was actually valuable, um, to enable people to set prices um, based on that um, that token or that digital currency for people to, you know, do peer-to-peer, you know, buying services, and so. You know, we built out this whole model and also the user experience behind it. And and where we kind of the, the big aha moment along the way there was <laughs> earlier this year, we, we you know, early 2017, we looked at all the technology that we were going to need to build in order to tokenize this one app. And we we kept hitting all these kind of like we have a very experienced technology team, right? And we've scaled Internet companies to tens of millions of users, billions, right. literally billions of emails and we we kept we hit this stumbling block we were like okay 
you know, we would need to solve, you know, you can't do this on public Ethereum because public Ethereum doesn't scale to the transaction volume we would need and the kind of the, the throughput levels we would need. So we'd have to look at kind of alternative uh, kind of blockchains. Um, and we wanted to be on a blockchain. We wanted everything to be, you know, you know, public on a blockchain and to be, you know, transparent and open and mutable, but it couldn't be on public Ethereum. Um, and so we would need to have a solution for that. We wanted to say a solution for, um, you know, keys and permissions and wallets so that, you know, does every user at what stage needs to, you know, kind of own their private key or could there be, you know, some, something where as people are becoming more and more comfortable with technology, is that how you go from 25 million people using crypto to hundreds of millions or right. we kind of saw that. We saw that we'd have to build things around, you know, even like sub, sounds basic, but like KYC. So if, you know, someone's earning your token and there's, then they want to. There's nothing and, basic about KYC and AML, right? Right. But most people don't even realize that. Okay, they don't even know it's you there. Token, yeah. You want to launch a token and you, you want to enable people then to take that token and convert it to whether it's, you know, another crypto or fiat. You have to do a KYC in order to make it happen once you touch fiat. And they're like, okay, so we want to build that. So we kept getting all these things that we need to build. And then I think what a lot of people don't realize is just, you know, you know, the the middleware and the the internal tools you would need to build, right? So like think about like how your team uh, has a dashboard to manage your token economy and to look at the sources and sinks and uses of the you know and and are people hoarding t- tokens and kind of what's happening to supply and demand? Like you know imagine like you know having a website and not having Google Analytics, right? So it's like you know and we looked at we would need to build all this, this stuff, right? And we. We that was like the aha moment where we just realized, okay, and, and frankly, you know, there were a number of people who said, you know what, the, the technology is not ready for this. Come, Come back in a few years. I was gonna say that's what I was thinking. Was like, okay, we'll build that for you, but that's gonna take us eighteen months. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had lots of no, not only eighteen months. I had a lot of people say, like, you know. Three or four years, come back, and blockchain will be, you know, consumer grade and ready, and you know, come back then. Right. And that was where we were like, okay, this is opportunity, right? Because someone's going to build this bridge, um, and why not us? Because we know how to, you know, if, if there's one thing that we know how to do, it's we know how to build kind of great user experiences and scale up technology, simplify hard problems, and and so this was like that big aha moment to us was for us was okay, there's a long term build here to be the bridge between mainstream and crypto. And that bridge is something that, you know, rather than building this just for one app, Peepo, we should build this for all the apps. Right. Um, and and then again, kind of going going back to kind of like the, the history of the internet, history of technology, you know, I think you know, there's always been this need uh, for you know, middleware and for B2B applications, developer tools um, that, you know, and, and for some reason I think in blockchain people had kind of, gone directly in their mind, or a lot of people, not everyone, but from infrastructure, you know, so protocols to apps, because the world is just like one, you know, everyone, everyone just uses apps all day. And so everyone's thinking, okay, first, we're going to have all this infrastructure built, and then we're gonna have all these blockchain apps. And I think people kind of forgot that, you know, in the history of technology, there's always this kind of middleware and kind of B2B layer that comes in between. Um, and we think it's really important to build that. I'll give it like the example is, uh, you know, give me a couple of examples. Uh, one is, you know, if you're a, in a, you know, in a company and you're, you know, you need to have a CRM solution, no one thinks about building CRM from scratch these days. They just plug in salesforce.com, right. um, or similar solution because, you know, you focus on your core business and your users and your tech and you, you build in these, these, these services, right? Or if you want to take payments, you don't build a payment gateway yourself. You just plug in Stripe. Um, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies now use Stripe to accept payments. 
uh, you know, companies like Uber and Airbnb, they could have built their own, they have smart developers, they could have built their own messaging services to, you know, for their SMS and, you know, kind of notifications to their users. But of course they don't. They use Twilio, right? Because Twilio solved that problem for them and they just plug it in and they can focus on their core business. Right. That's, that's what we're working on for blockchain. We're basically saying that, um, you know, millions of businesses, um, you know, could benefit from being on a blockchain. Um, and doesn't necessarily mean their entire business from having part of their business on a blockchain. And there's, you know, tons of different use cases for tokenization, but not everyone needs to build all that themselves. And so what we're doing with Simple Token is building the infrastructure and the middleware that can enable any company that has a, has a legitimate reason for bringing part of the business on a blockchain, for layering on a digital currency, a token, that they can do that using our, te- our technology, our protocol, our software, without having to build from scratch themselves. Right. So that's a gigantic, I mean, that's a gigantic build though, right? Yeah. And that's, a, and that's the thing. So, so, you know, we built a protocol, it's called OpenST, um, which is kind of step one in a long process, right? So the, what the OpenST protocol does, and I should say, you know, we backing up to like, you know, our team is like years of experience in consumer internet and scaling internet companies. We, partnered up with a group of people who, um, some guys that I've known in Berlin who were the Berlin team from Monax, which was yep. pioneers in scaling you know, Ethereum, right? They're the lead developers of Hyperledger Burrow, um, one of the projects for scaling Ethereum. And we immediately, you know, we, we dug into this together and we looked at how are we going to solve the Ethereum scaling problem? Um, because we wanted to build on Ethereum, but we didn't want to have, you know, we didn't want to be the only ones. You know, wouldn't have to wait for Ethereum to scale public Ethereum. And so we looked at, you know, to do, you know, a private chain. There was all sorts of reasons why we didn't want to do that. Permission chain, all reasons why we didn't want to do that. Uh, you know, to do off-chain, no way. Then you kind of, you know, you might as well just be using a database. And, you know, so the innovation that our team developed, um, and we've now released the code, you know, it's open source on GitHub, is um, using side chains, which is essentially is, it's you know the benefits of public Ethereum kind of kind of replicating public Ethereum but not being on public Ethereum and you can continue to shard to you know you know to add more instances and 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 you know scalability and so what the OpenSD protocol essentially does what kind of the first phase of this is enables any company to stake simple tokens so to stake our ERC twenty token on public Ethereum mainnet against minting their own branded digital currency on open scalable sidechains. And those branded digital currencies, so let's say, you know, it's um, podcast token, right? And yep. every time someone, let's say, whenever someone, you know, listens to Asia Tech podcast and they like it, they could earn a token. There's other you know, various, say, aspects of the token economy. Asia, pod, Asia Tech podcast token is an ERC-20 token, but it, it the only thing it can be traded for is simple token. So we basically, what we've done is we've set up kind of a environment where the transactions for podcast token all happen on a blockchain, but the podcast token itself is not a freely floated token. There's no secondary market for it. So, so the company is insulated from a lot of the mess and kind of drama that goes on with having an ICO. Um, and it can focus on their business, get the benefits of being on a blockchain without having to have all the headaches involved. Right, but what is that? Feel free to slow down, slow me down. No, no, no. I, I, I get it completely. I, I worry about sometimes whether the listeners can, can yeah, keep yeah, yeah. up. Right. So what I like to do, if you can, is just back up for a second. In a, yeah. I, I like to do because I like to simplify things for people. Right. So in a one company economy that sits that uses the OpenST, 
right? Yeah. That doesn't, that wants to have some kind of tokenization for their business. And, and Asia Tech Podcast is the perfect example. And, and frankly, we want to do that. We want to be actually the first podcast that actually has a tokenized business model because we think that there are many reasons why that makes sense. I can talk to you about this in terms of logistics and, you know, last mile delivery and podcasts and a whole bunch of things. We, we seriously considering this, which is one of the reasons why I want to learn as much as possible about OpenST and Simple Token itself. And I want to talk about the ICO too, because I want people to know how significant this is. When this is over, I want people to understand like what's going on. I get it, but I want others to understand it too. But in a, in an, in a one company universe, right, where OpenST is available, I don't have to do my own ICO, but I can issue a token that then is, tr it, that it has a relationship with a simple token. What's the benefit to ATP? And then what's the yeah. benefit to the people that have it? And if they exchange it for a simple token, what can they do with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so great questions there. And I think you, you, you nailed the, the, the concept of, you know, exactly. I mean, I think so the, and the simple way to think about it is that, you know, there's all sorts of things that, you know, benefits that, that say ATP can have from having your own, you know, digital currency, you know, that is based on a real crypto. So that, yeah. let's say, as opposed to, say, airline loyalty points is like the easiest example where they're black boxes and no one knows how much they earn and how they earn. And you don't really own your points because the airline dictates, right. you know, the only thing you can spend them on. You know, imagine if you were able to have your own currency around Asia Tech Podcasts and you're able to use it for various types of user incentives and rewards and monetizing microtransactions mm -hmm. and user, user transactions. And all of that is based on an actual crypto um, so that the user always has a right, always has a claim to the underlying value of what's what's backing it. That's essentially what we're doing here. And so what we're doing is let's think about simple token as a master token that other companies can white label. Um, and using our tech very easily launched their own token um, backed by Simple Token. And there's always the user, the end user always has a right, a legal right to the, the stake Simple Token against the, say, ATP token. Right. Uh, and so, and that's why I so said Simple Token has a, the reason why we're doing an ICO right now is that Simple Token, we, we have to have a, we're minting Simple Token in the ICO. It's a utility token that, you know, basically you, you need it in order to operate the whole protocol, right? In order to mint these branded tokens, you have to have Simple Token at the heart of it. And the, and there needs to be a value to it as well, right? So if you want to have a token economy that's worth, say, starting off at, say, you know, a hundred thousand uh, dollars, worth of, you know, ATP tokens, you need to start with $100,000 worth of simple tokens that are staked against it. And then the user always has a, you know, a right as they're earning tokens to convert their ATP token to simple token or to, fee, you know, and through that to fiat or whatever else they might want to convert. And is that, is that fixed? Is the relationship to that fixed? Yeah. So basically the way, the way it's set up is, and it's going to sound complicated for economic theory, but it makes a lot, it'll, it'll, it, it comes across, once you get through it, 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 it's really simple, right? So the idea is that, Let's just take a small example, right? So if you say you, you know, you don't have to have a massive economy to start. You can say, let's start you off with, let's say, you know, a, a thousand US dollars worth of simple tokens mm -hmm. and you create an exchange rate of, let's say, you know, a hundred to one or a thousand to one, mm -hmm. uh, to ATP tokens. So, so each, and let's say it just, you know, take a simple math. Let's say that if each civil token was worth a dollar by the, according to the market at that time, you might have, you know, ATP tokens that are worth, you know, a penny each or a tenth of a cent each. And then you could have users earning those tokens. Um, but the exchange rate between ATP token and simple token is fixed. Now, 
there's the next question that everyone else says, well, what happens if simple token goes up and down, right? And basically, this is where you get some really exciting kind of aspects of this, where you can use, say, price oracles to establish that even if simple token goes up and down, that the value that you assign for the action within the ATP community doesn't change. So if someone's earning, say, you know, one ATP token and it's worth, like, say, one cent for every upvote or every like, that a simple token doubles that they're earning, you know, half as many ATP tokens. Um, so that auto adjusts. Um, but the user, the underlying value for the user is that they're still earning the same amount of, of value. The other thing that we've just spent a lot of work on as well is a really, you know, sophisticated kind of price stabilization mechanisms that companies can provide um, so that they can insulate their users even from seeing, you know, large fluctuations um, in what they're earning. So a lot of great, great concepts and thought and economic theory going into this. We're trying to really, and it's kind of the whole thing, is we're trying to really simplify this for everyone so that if you're a consumer app, you don't need to think about a lot of these things. You can say, okay, there's this module and this module and this module, and I can easily, you know, uh, you know, train, adjust the system and kind of do my settings in a way where it makes sense to me. Right. I mean, in a way, it sounds to me like a simple token is a reserve currency. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and that's in the same way that the dollar had worked as a reserve currency for a while. And even though the yen fluctuated against the dollar internally to the Japanese economy, you could still buy all the same things predicated on well, the fact that you weren't importing things. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a good way. It's like the purchasing power shouldn't change based right. on the reserve currency. It's a great way to put. It. Now, simple token is a lot more than just a reserve currency. I understand so that. The, I'm just I'm just trying yeah. to simplify it so other people sure. can understand the concept. Right? I get it completely. Yeah. And so, and so, and so the thing is like, so the, the minting of ST, which is at the heart of the open ST protocol is right. important because there has to be a market value placed on what is being staked. So what is in that reserve currency? Sure. But where we're going with this is, is a much, much bigger vision, right? So we have, you know, right now we're talking to a hundred plus companies who want to be building on open ST. Um, we signed seven of them as our kind of first partners. We're going to announce another couple in the next few days. Good stuff. And they all have really interesting kind of, you know, ec- you know, models for their own token economies that they're going to be building on ST. Where we want to go with this is, you know, the, the first batch of companies, you know, will, you know, it's not as plug and play, not as turnkey, but the idea is, you know, that after, you know, the 10th, the 20th, the 50th, the 100th, the 250th, the 1000th, that it becomes much more plug and play over time. That it's almost as easy as say setting up a you know Shopify or Wix e-commerce site yep. or, or you know setting up a, a medium blog is you know, kind of launching your token economy that you know you focus on your users you focus on your core tech and you leave the blockchain infrastructure and tokenization to us and it, you're just adjusting settings. Right, and look, that's a great way to explain it, right? In the sense that I want to run a blog, but I don't really know how to do like HTML. Right. So, or, or any, or any kind of editing. So I just go on to blogger in the old days or today I just go on to medium and I just start typing and I just hit post. Exactly. And that's, and that's where we want to get to. And, and look, it's not going to happen overnight, but no, we no, no, no. This, go back to like, we, we come back to people saying, we'll come back in three years. We said, okay, let's build that. Right. So let's, right. let's build the on ramp so that, you know, and, and we're very transparent to companies. We say, look, the open ST protocol is available today. It works. It, you know, does what it says it's supposed to do. But it's step one. And the early companies, you know, it's developers first. Um, and, you know, but those developers don't need to be blockchain developers. They can no. just be web developers. And so that's the first real innovation that we've done is we've built APIs. kind of scalability. Yeah. And so we've built scalability and we've built APIs to the blockchain and the OpenST that they can be just web developers. 
Um, but they need to do some development. And then where we want to go to is that less and less and less development. It's more, as you said, kind of, you know, to set up your blog, you don't need to write any code anymore. Um, that's where we want to get to on this. Right. I mean, isn't it similar? Again, I just like to keep making these similarities and equivalencies. It's like you don't need to build all of your own analytics. You just need to put some JavaScript at the bottom of your blog and that connects to Google Analytics and then you're done. Exactly. And that's also like, so, you know, and so one of my aha moments when we were kind of going through this, you know, you know, 18 months ago was I kind of said, hey, look, guys, you know, we know that we could benefit from having a token economy at PIPO. We we built the economic model for it. We see how people are going to earn the token, how they're going to be able to spend the token, uh, how people would buy the token to top up when they need to, you know, buy, you know, pay for more services. And you know that economic choice was really interesting. You know, so you can say, okay, I can earn the token either by contributing my time or my content or my data, or I can just take out my wallet and buy it if I need more. That becomes a real economy. And we saw the need for that, and we saw. But then we were like, hmm. I had this kind of like, if you fast forward two or three years from now. People are going to be buying that from like AWS or Facebook well, or something. I was going to use AWS as my next example. Right? Exactly. Because, uh-huh. and they'll just take it for granted. Look, it's the same way that the, and in a way, it's not the same, but it's close enough. Like when the Diners Club first started their credit card, like back in the 40s, they were like, you know what? I'll just pay you later. I'll write down my name on this thing. Oh my God, yeah. it's a Diners Club. I get it. Okay. And only yeah. rich people can use it. It's really easy. And then someone said, wait a second. Let's put give everybody a number and then we'll systematize this. That's coming in a year or two. Like it's the same process, right? Yeah, I mean, look, and AWS is the greatest. And that was the first thing I said. I said, I said, three years from now, everyone's going to be buying this from AWS right. unless somebody or someone else who gets there first. So we should be let's let's create the tokenization as a service that you know the you know let's 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 get there first. Right. Uh, you know, it's like AWS is like you know, anything that you as a developer need in order to launch something done. on your, your building is AWS, right? And so. We're like, all right, but no one's done tokenization as a service. And and the thing with tokenization is because there's it's not just software, there's also economic value behind it. That's that was like a really interesting opportunity to jump in jump in fast because you know the it's it's it, there's that hybrid of you know market value plus you know software that combines together that enables you to kind of you know build something that hasn't been done before. Um and and we also saw that look as I said, we're, you know, 1993 equivalents in the internet, but 1999 year 2000 hype. And the reason for that is because also of the underlying economic value. Um, and, you know, people see, you know, kind of that, that, that it's not just about software. It's also about the, you know, the, the economic value of crypto and that's right. what gets people rushing in so fast. Now the, the positive of that is, you know, there is not probably a developer in the world who has not thought at least a few minutes in the last year about having an ICO because just mm-hmm. because wrong reason because they see dollar signs yep. right but the the positive of that is that there's a lot of companies who so I mean, first of all there's there's all sorts of bad ICOs out there's also sort of companies I mean, if all you're looking to do is raise you know raise capital you should do that through equity and debt I'm, I'm very passionate about that that is not that's the wrong reason to do an ICO an ICO should be because you need to have a token Correct. and that to- because that token has a utility to it and the software won't function without it or the market won't work that you're trying to build without some economic value to the token right. it's not enterprise value it's an equity value like that there's there's something else there right but the positive in all this kind of ICO craze is that there's actually a lot of companies who have gone through the thoughtful next step of make, uh, modeling out a token economy like we did with Pipo and then they hit that wall where they realize, okay, we can't build this ourselves and that we really shouldn't build this ourselves because why should everyone start from scratch? And that's where it's like, okay, well, that's what we're building Symbol Token for is for all those companies. 
And then there's also just the fact that like, you know, the market's not going to support tens of thousands of freely floated traded no you know, tokens. No way. Right? But but that's that's okay. That's so okay. We can no, that's fine, actually. Exactly. exactly. So it's, it's just like, you know, there's public companies and private companies. You know, there's, you know, there's no reason to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of publicly traded tokens. But a master token, like Simple Token, that has software capabilities underneath it that other folks can white label, we think that's a good play. Well, it's a, it's an amazing play, actually. And in the same way, again, I like to make equivalencies and tell stories, right? But in the same way that there are bad ICOs out there, there are, let's be fair, there are bad IPOs out there as well, where, oh, where yeah. investors, and whether they're regulated or not regulated, whether they're sophisticated investors or not, you know, the way I, the way some IPOs are done, you could just watch again with experience and just go, this thing's going to zero. And, there's no difference. There may be more hype today around an ICO, but you know, I've seen plenty of IPOs in my time where you just look at it and just say, I can't believe this thing's going public and anybody would buy that stock. Yeah. I mean, look again, going back to the dot com, you know, kind of yep. bubble, um, you know, back in the late nineties, um, you know, what bubbles do is, you know, I think, you know, there's bubble isn't necessarily always a negative thing, right? What no. bubble is a reflection of investor enthusiasm for something new. Right. And or something that, you know, that is emerging or something that has you know, greater potential. And back in the late 90s, the Internet dot com bubble was, you know, it, it was driven, fueled by investor enthusiasm for the potential of the technology. And, you know, it's like if we had known back then what we know now, it's like, OK, you know, it makes sense if there was a lot of you know investor enthusiasm for it. Of course. Just you know, money comes. The money came in fast. And so, that, like, you know, ideas were able to go public faster than they should have. Um, because there's so much capital pouring in, it's the same thing right now with ICOs. That there's a lot of ideas that are too too soon, too too young, um, not baked enough. That you know, and 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 they got a lot of support, especially over this summer for doing ICOs. Hmm. But this is going to settle out, right? And, yep. and I'll, I'll tell you what our approach has been, right? So our and again, I, I wrote a blog post on this last week that was um, the the number one most read blog post in um, Hacker Noon and tech on, on Medium. It was really well. My, I, I think that the it was about kind of IC, the ICO bubble and where I think it's headed. And my I really called on the industry to kind of self police before the regulators do everything for us. Um, but I, I really think that you know there's certain criteria that a good ICO is going to have to um, meet. And, you know, as I said, it, sh- it should not be that an ICO is just to raise money. It should be because there's an underlying utility and purpose of the token and that you need to mint a value of the token in order for the software and that utility to work and for the economic model to work, that that utility has been proven. Um, so, you know, the days of ICOs for, you know, trust us, we'll build this or over. You need to show the utility is actually built, you know, built and developed before you, you know, do the ICO. And then also I think it's just being modest uh, around, you know, there were ICOs over the summer that raised, you know, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million dollars. And, you know, the approach we've taken is, you know, I've, I've been running software companies and internet companies for years. You know, we don't need that, that amount of money to launch phase one of this project. And we basically said, are you capping you yourselves? Know, yeah. Like our, our target was, you know, we, we set out a target of, you know, a hundred million ST, so simple tokens. Yep. Um, at around eight cents, eight point three three cents was roughly our kind of target, right? And we said if if we hit that, that's a victory, all right? So that's that was like eight million dollars, yep. right? And, yep. and and that's enough for us to to build this on. And then we set out a, a mechanism where we said, okay, so if you know if the community's you know kind of enthusiasm for the project and people want to buy more simple tokens 
you know, if we basically said, well, if that exceeds our target, um, what we would do is uh, as we inch up closer to our hard cap, we would provide, you know, bonuses back to the community, almost like, you know, effectively price discounts, um, but in the form of bonuses, getting more ST into the hands of more purchasers and effectively lowering the price for everyone. So it's, a, we basically it's a green shoe. That. It's just a green shoe. You just exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and we basically said, so if we hit our target of 100 million ST, which we did, um, a couple of days ago, so we're at about, I think about 109% right now of our target. Um, everyone who participated in the token sale got uh, a 20% bonus, effectively lowered their cost basis. Yep. Uh, and then we were doing another kind of, you know, another 5% uh, bonus when we hit 120 million, which we call the kicker, and then another one, 180 million. I mean, I kind of equate it to it's like, you know, we had 240 ice cream cones to sell. We only need to sell 100. Um, if we sell 100, we're going to give everyone a lower price. If we sell 120, we're going to give everyone an even lower price. And the idea of that is just to, you know, reward the community as, you know, rather than just just feeding our coffers. And again, going back towards getting as much ST into developers' hands as possible, um, because companies are going to need to, you know, companies need to get ST. They need to stake ST in order to support their their token economies. And we want to have developers out there who who have it that are building on it, and um, and companies are going to need a place to buy from as well. Yeah, I mean. Do you want to finish the conversation on your ICO and then I want to talk about if you succeed, what the implications are going to be both economically and socially? And I want to use an example of my own, but I also want to hear one of your examples because I think this could be one of these things and I actually not could be, but this will be if you succeed, right, to the level where you want to succeed. This is like hyperlinking in a way. Do you know what I mean? We're like, they didn't really know what it was going to be. Like Tim Berners-Lee, I believe, right, who created all this stuff back when the internet was really being created. He was like, yeah, we'll just link all this stuff together. But I don't think people realized back then when they created it what the economic impact was going to be. Well, I, I look, I, I think um, I, I, this could be like a whole other podcast. I know, I know. Right? Like, Maybe it should be, but... The, the, I mean, the, the thing is, like, you know, I, I look at is there's so, so many norms that have developed over the years for institutions and intermediaries who control, you know, kind of coming in between, you know, users and their data and their privacy yep. and, you know, as transaction intermediaries. All those things are, you know, it's, they're not going to go away completely, but they're going to start to wither and kind of, you know, they become new norms around that. And we also looked at the relationship that, brands and companies have with consu- with their their customers and consumers are going to evolve at the same time with it as well Absolutely. so that you know and you know if people start to come to ex- like just like you know we've come to expect certain things because we have supercomputers in our pockets that we walk around with right. when people come to expect that they have more control over their data that transactions are more seamless and with less transaction fees then companies that embrace that will also have a you know a, a a more kind of advantage in their position with how they kind of handle their customer relations and how they work with consumers as well. And so we think you know redefining and being one of the companies helping redefine that you know how do we help companies you know build better bonds uh, with their customers and treat them better and um, you know that we think that's a you know a really interesting place to be. Uh, I think another thing that's you know, I, I should say is that. When you know when when you have you know thousands and thousands of companies who are you know having a a digital currency um, that is backed by crypto, it educates more and more you know you know people on crypto, um, which is you know it's like 
the more people who are using something that's based on a crypto, the more people will start to kind of understand the kind of the new economic system that's developing. Yep. Even if they're not touching it directly at first, correct, they're touching correct. it just like right, right. And then I think it's also something that's really interesting: the interoperability that creates um, nice. and the opportunities from that. That you know, as I go back to like the, the simple like airline reward program, because it's something everyone's familiar with is. You know, when you earn your, you know, let's say, you know, your airline points, uh, that airline basically dictates what you can spend them on. And you can't just walk into a coffee shop and spend your airline points without, you know, unless they have some special relationship. Uh, now, if this is all on a blockchain, it's, you know, you own the underlying asset behind it. And if, if as long as the, you know, each of the, you know, the, the, the businesses that you're transacting with are also on, you know, kind of interoperable blockchain, you can seamlessly work between them. Um, right. And so I always say, like, you, know, you, you could be earning bike sharing token um, and spending it at coffee shop token because they're both underneath it powered by a civil token. Right. So a company called Loyal is actually building that. My friend Greg Simon, an ex Morgan Stanley guy that I worked with, is actually building an interoperability platform using the Ethereum block, well, using the blockchain to take those loyalty points off of the books and records of airlines and other companies like that and then making it available on a platform so that every yeah. business can then use them. So it's a great idea. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, we have in our pipeline of, you know, 100 plus companies who've you know, contacted us. I think there's at least five or six. Yep. It's not. It's just like what your what what your guy your friend Greg. We have at least five or six that have come to us and said, "Okay, we want to be kind of the loyalty point system that cuts across all these, yep. but we still need to, we still want to build on Simple Token because we don't want to build everything ourselves. So can we base that off Simple Token?" Right. I mean, that's the AWS model. You've just you've just done that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to give you one more example, and then I'll let you go. Hopefully, we've covered all the stuff that you wanted to cover. It's been really fascinating, actually. Um, and I think people are really going to learn something from listening to this, but also, um, really enjoy it as well. But if you think, I want to talk a little bit about supply chain dynamics, and this is not my idea. It was explained to me by a guy named Matt, Max Ward, right? Because he's building something around this. But if you think about last mile delivery and how it's handled, particularly in Southeast Asia, normally it's a family borrows money from their other friends and family and they buy two trucks. Because they then, they know the neighborhoods in which they operate, in which they live, and they, get paid to do last mile delivery. The only problem is, is that the supply chains are filled with counterfeiting and fraud. But if you put all of the supply chain on a blockchain, right, and give them and you tokenize it, then all the KPIs that are, <clears throat> that are committed, right, if you have an automatically executing Ethereum contract based on KPIs all along that supply chain, what you do is you basically collapse the payment cycle for that family that's borrowed money to get tokenized payments Every time they accomplish the little things, so micropayments, yeah, that are tokenized, which means that instead of waiting six months to get paid for their entire payment, they get little payments along the way every time they accomplish something. It changes the entire dynamics and economics for families that are doing that Absolutely. business, and that's the reason why this is so important. Yeah, you know, we're working with a company called Flowship. Um, yeah, I know which, Flowship. Um, and so they're they're one of our first uh, you know announced partners, and they're really excited to be building you know a token powered by Symbol Token for that exact same reason. Right. But that's, that's why it matters. Like, that's not the type of thing you read about in the news. You read about, you know, Mt. Gox and all this other silliness, which is bad, but you don't read about that thing because it doesn't sell a lot of newspapers. But that's the key to me. And that's one of the paradigm changes that I like to follow because that's why this is so important. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, the, the, 
yeah, I mean, you and I are on the same page on this. So, so look, in terms of our token sale, it's just been, I will say one last thing on is that Go for it. it's just been awesome, the enthusiasm from and support from the community. And, you know, we, I come from the world of, you know, venture and equity financing where, you know, you talk to, you know, mostly, you know, funds and, you know, kind of institutions. And what's been great about the, 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 the token sale model for us is just been how, how how involved we'd be able to get with kind of educating and working directly with um, companies who could benefit from ST from yeah. from individuals who kind of see what we're trying to build here and they 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 see the power of it. You know, we have in our we have a Telegram channel now that um, t.me you know, forward slash symbol token that has you know forty five hundred I think it's forty eight hundred even um, people in it that are you know I'm in there eighteen twenty hours a day. You know, it's like we're answering questions nonstop from the uh, from people in it and it's it's awesome because people they want to you know, we obviously an educated customer is our best customer they want to understand the solution that's really i mean that's what's amazing about it and you know i, I was talking today to someone in, in the telegram channel about you know they have an app in vietnam and they want to build a token economy and they love to you know understand how they need to build how to build on simple token and we're like exactly that's exactly right. what, why we're doing this Absolutely. and yeah exactly Wow, we've covered a lot of ground, huh? Yeah, that's this has been fantastic. Thank you, Michael, so much for the time and the thoughtfulness behind it. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.